This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. talking about a non-God-focused Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to hear from her. We're also going to hear from Byron Wood, who will be speaking after Stephanie. He's, he will tell you why he's here and what he's caught up in right now that's related to this topic. Thank you. There was an update on that shooting in Florida. The man who did the shooting was actually an American. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, uh, please let me know if you can't hear me. I'm not used to using a microphone. Uh, Maybe more like this. A little closer to my mouth. Yeah, Is that better? Sure. Okay. So, and please, uh, I will probably lose track of this. I am not an experienced public speaker. I'm not experienced with microphones, and I'm incredibly nervous about doing this. Um, so, I'd like everyone to really be patient with me. Um, this is the first time I've spoken about this topic sort of publicly and in a structured way. And it's a little strange to be addressing a group of people about what happened to me because a little under four years ago, I woke up one morning after a memorably terrible night before and decided that it was time for me to stop drinking. Um, and I'm here not so much, I'm not here so much to talk about, um, uh, I'm not here to advocate for a, a, a God-free AA. Um, I'm here to talk about what happened when I, as at the time an agnostic, went to AA and asserted myself as somebody who didn't believe in God and sort of the adventures that followed. Um, I, I know a lot of people who are in recovery. Uh, the, the Iggy Pop shirt may be a clue to that. Uh, I, I'm a veteran of the, the punk rock scene, and, and we have a lot of people with serious drug and alcohol problems, some of whom didn't make it, and many of whom did. And so when I decided to quit drinking, I got in touch with a few friends of mine who are people who don't drink anymore, and they encouraged me to go to AA. Uh, and I mean, I was aware of AA's materials, right? We'll get to that. But but they, I'm also a great fan of mutual aid. Uh, AA is organized on a mutual aid model. Uh, uh, it's ostensibly organized at the individual group level, and groups are self-governing. Uh, it's free. You know, those are principles that that I really believe in. So I and and they told me that AA welcomes everyone. So I went. Um, so, I mean, a number of things ended up happening because of my decision to attend AA, not the least of which is that I'm no longer a member of AA and likely never will be one again. Uh, in, in AA, um, there are a lot of people who assert that non-believers, that humanists, have a rightful place in AA and in other similarly constituted fellowships. Uh, and as I said, I asserted that, that position in AA. In doing so, I ran afoul of a number of factions in AA that are actively hostile to secularism and secular values. 
I, I will say that the one positive thing that I did get out of AA was clarity about the complete irrelevance of any concept of God to my ability to be well and happy. Uh, so I, I went into AA as an agnostic and came out as an atheist, um, <laughs> which was actually a very good thing. So, so what I'd like to do is talk about my experiences as a non-believer in some context. So I'm going to provide some information about the religious language and practices people are confronted with when they encounter AA or other 12-step groups and the barriers created for non-believers. I'm not going to go too far into that literature because the last thing anybody needs is, is me trying to engage in an in-depth interpretation of a number of extremely internally contradictory and cumbersome texts. Um, I'm also going to talk a bit about the history of the secular tradition in AA, because uh, there actually is one, and it's very strong, uh, non as non-believers have tried to function within that framework. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the current sectarian controversies in AA, how they've developed, quote-unquote, theologically, and how they're playing out now, uh, specifically with regard to the expulsion of secular groups from intergroups in Toronto and Vancouver, and AA World Services' attempts to deal with the controversies. Um, what I believe to be writing on the question of, is AA religious? Uh, because, oddly enough, both yes and no answers can have negative consequences for secularists. And a little bit of brief advice or information about resources I'd offer to secular humor, uh, humanists who are in recovery. Um, so, hang on, I'm just going to grab some water. Um, I don't know how many people in this room have actually ever been to a 12-step meeting, and I'm not going to ask you to identify yourselves, uh, but the first thing that you will notice when you walk into pretty much any of them is this. Now, it doesn't display very well. These are the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you, I, I, I'm, they've been adapted for virtually any kind of problem that could broadly be construed as an addiction, whether accurately or no. They're pretty much ubiquitous. But just really quickly, in case people haven't read them, um, admitting powerless over alcohol, just powerlessness over alcohol and the unmanageability of your life. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I can, I can hear some surprise. Some people aren't familiar with these, eh? Um, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends for them all. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Um, th that this particular approach to recovery involves some difficulty for people who are not inclined to believe in a prayer-answering, malady-healing deity should be fairly evident. This is a Christian penitent model. Um, abjection before God, uh, belief uh, and faith in God, uh, the, the uh, cataloging confession and forgiveness of sins, okay? good works, eh? 
um, and proselytization. Right. So, I mean, this is this is basically a, a classic Christian penitent model, which is unsurprising because the guy who's primarily responsible for writing this uh, before he was in AA was in a group called the Oxford Group, which was a uh, Christian, uh, a, a very sort of militant Christian organization that preached things like perfect faith. Yeah. Um, and this is ultimately an adaptation of, of uh, Oxford group principles to recovery uh, after he quit drinking. That would be Bill Wilson. Um, it, it, the other thing that will happen when you go to AA uh, is that people will immediately give you a copy of what's known as the big book. Um, people will call it the basic text. It's called Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it contains a lot of stories that are colloquially referred to as drunkologues. Like if somebody goes to a meeting and they speak and, and they talk about how their life was and what happened and how it is now, people will call it a drunkologue. Um, drunkologues serve the purpose of getting people to identify with AA as an organization of similarly troubled people. Uh, and, and then there's also what folks often call the first 164 pages. Uh, those contain sort of the fundamental doctrine of AA including the steps. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole section called How It Works that's read out, frankly, religiously at a lot of meetings. Um, and it also contains a, a chapter that's supposed to address the needs of agnostics, conveniently in called We Agnostics. Um, we Agnostics does not actually address the needs of agnostics. It, it insults us, them. Um, what We Agnostics actually does is uh, encourage people who don't believe in God, actually basically command people who don't believe in God to come up with some kind of placeholder God that they can put their faith in until through their cleansing of the spirit, until they become spiritually fit, they are capable uh, of, of coming to know the real God and their puny cells will expand so that they can see the real God. And, and it contains, you know, some, some blunt language, you know, sort of either God is or he is not, you know, sort of basically who are you, tiny mortal, to judge, right? Um, and I mean, and it, it's really shocking how many people will actually nod at you and say, oh, no, 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 agnostics are totally welcome here. Look, there's a chapter in the big book, right? It's, it's really, uh, it's really confusing. <laughs> so, so faced with all of this God stuff, what is a self-respecting non-believer to do? Um, keeping in mind, of course, that in a lot of traditional AA, they don't believe there's any such thing as a self-respecting non-believer. Um, so this question is actually as old as AA. Uh, there was a famous early member named Jim Burwell, who legendarily went to battle with Bill Wilson, who's considered one of the two founders of AA, uh, over all the God in the steps. A number of people had gotten together in the quote-unquote fellowship uh, before the uh, the big book and the steps were written, a bunch of people got together and and got sober in community, and uh, Jim Burwell and a number of other atheists and agnostics were actually present in that cohort. So that is actually why the steps refer to God as we understand Him, uh, and the second step refers to a power greater than ourselves instead of God. Because uh, to, to Bill Wilson, that was actually a huge compromise. Like, that was the biggest compromise that they could actually manage at the time that this was being written in, like, 1939. Um, 
it's it's noted in AA history that many of the other members of AA at the time wished that Jim Burwell would get drunk, uh, which would serve the the dual purpose of getting rid of him because he was irritating them so much with his advocacy for recovery that didn't rely on a Christian God and prove that you couldn't get sober without God, which would be a satisfying I told you so to the cranky atheist. Um, that, that unfortunately is a sentiment that continues in some parts of AA to this day. Um, so what a bunch of people have done is organize. There's actually a long secular tradition in AA. Uh, the first, they call it Quad A meeting. Uh, some, they're also called Freethinkers meetings. They have a lot of different names. Uh, but it, Quad A is for atheists and agnostics and alcoholics anonymous. So people will you know, colloquially refer to Quad A or uh, WAFTs, we agnostics and freethinkers. Right? Um, the first one was held in Chicago in 1975. Uh, meetings came to New York in the 1980s. There are meetings all over North America. Uh, they, they, they tend to get the side eye from believers, but they've generally been well regarded and well attended in a number of cities. A lot of people have adopted a live and let live attitude and have let people just go ahead and have their meetings and do their thing. Uh, and there are a lot of people who were involved in those, the creation of those early meetings who are afforded sort of a lot of respect within AA broadly. Um, the people who attend those meetings uh, believe that AA is what it says uh, it is in what's generally called the AA preamble, a, a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other, that they may solve their common problem and help others to, to recover from alcoholism. And they also believe the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Um, so th that is sort of the governing set of principles for people who believe that you can be a secularist in AA. Uh, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking is the third tradition of AA in short form. It likes to organize itself in 12s. So there's 12 steps, there's 12 traditions, and then there's like 12 concepts of the world service. Um, but the thing is, of course, you organize those meetings, but that still leaves us with the, the problem of this program, right? Um, so it's so like, how do people deal with this program? And the way that they deal with it is they rewrite it. That is what they do. People engage in a close textual reading you know, that encourages them to find meanings for the words that fit into a program that works for themselves. That's what people do, right? Um, now, one of the problems you'll encounter is that people who are doing that in traditional AA will often swear up and down that they are not doing it. That the program that they are working is the program of AA set out in the big book. That everything that they need in AA is in the big book. But, of course, the problem is that, that anyone who doesn't actually believe in an anthropomorphized God who grants prayers and cures alcoholism for those who are quote unquote spiritually fit is actually working an adapted program. Because it's this, the minute that you throw a placeholder God into here, something stops functioning, right? If, if like people, there are jokes that you often hear about like the doorknob as a placeholder God. You just need to believe in something other than yourself. Well, of course, what ends up happening then is it, it, it becomes difficult to figure out what knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out might mean if your placeholder God is a doorknob, right? Um, or that tree. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, but, 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 but folks are super, super protective of this and this doctrine. And, and 
and and they they are really not willing to acknowledge that that they're doing things that actually aren't in that program, um, which is unfortunate. Because if you you look at this and dig dig the god out, which is not not an easy thing to do, granted, but but it's worth trying. There there are actually some things in here that can be helpful to folks who are trying to recover. Accepting that you can't drink, believing that recovery is possible, uh, understanding that you can't go it alone, right? that you have to you you can't do this in isolation. You have to rely on other people. Um, uh, understanding yourself, uh, sorry, unburdening yourself from shame and secrets and fear and being met with acceptance. Recognizing the part you play in conflict in your life and trying to right wrongs that you've done. Maintaining a certain discipline in your recovery, helping other people. These are all things that can be enormously helpful to folks who have been living in shame, fear, guilt, isolation. Um, enormously helpful. Uh, so what ended up happening is that people started writing those things down. And that is when traditional AA collectively lost its shit, lost its mind. That is when AA lost its shit. Right? So like any other new religious movement with a dead founder, AA is rent with sectarianism. Uh, there are cults, there are actual cults within AA, uh, like you know, the UK's infamous Joys of Recovery. There are quasi cults, hmm, like the Hyannis Method and the Muckers. There are abusive cult-like leaders, like the famous Clancy, who speaks all over North America and the UK. And these are all sustained through a network of speakers, speaker tapes, private publications, Skype meetings, and specialized websites. Um, there are competing big book fundamentalists, some of whom think that you should work the steps in a few days, other of whom insist equally vehemently that they should take at least a year and be repeated annually. There are people who believe that the true program is the 24-hour program. Don't drink, go to meetings, help other people. Uh, common to most of these groups is a belief that there is a true AA that's somehow been watered down by people who vary from whatever they think the big book is telling them to do. Right. So it's it, it's like exactly it's like any other it, it's like different Christian sects warring over the Bible. It's the same thing. There are people who believe that the big book is divinely inspired. And, oh yeah 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 yeah. No, God moved Bill to write it. Um, so these guys, of course, these guys actually believe in an A that never existed. Their nostalgia is based on myths. It's based on myths about recovery rates in early AA. Uh, it's based on myths about who the first members were and how they got sober. It's based on myths about the big book itself. Uh, Bill Wilson wanted to convert people. He wasn't hugely concerned with accuracy in early days as the most effective evangelists are. Um, so the big book is not a historically accurate text. Uh, he, he, um, you know, so, but to a lot of people, the big book is gospel. So these are the folks, these people who believe that they are carrying forward the true, undiluted AA, who go on witch hunts against secularists in AA. And the way that folks really, the first sort of big Canadian version of that was in 2011, I believe, when uh, it started in 2011, when the Toronto area intergroup voted to expel a couple of secular groups 
from intergroup. And AA has a service structure that I won't spend too much time on. But intergroup, it exists sort of off to the side of service structure, and intergroup is practical. It maintains an office. Um, when people call for help, somebody at intergroup picks up the phone. They, uh, they distribute publications. They run committees that do things like uh, outreach into prisons, cooperation with the professional community. Uh, uh, it's, you know, so they speak in schools. They, they do have communities that are supposed to help with access. The most important thing for our purposes that intergroup does is publish the meeting directory. And so what expelling a group from intergroup does is make sure that they're not listed in the AA meeting directory. And of course, if you're not listed in the meeting directory, then folks can't find you, and then they can't come to your meeting. Um, so it, it, this, initial, this started in, in, in Toronto with the expulsion of two groups and has expand, expanded to include every secular group in the GTA. Um, and the reason that was given by Toronto Intergroup was that one of those groups had the temerity to publish on its website an amended set of 12 steps that made it useful to folks who don't believe in God. Um, so fortunately for me, the folks in Toronto who were expelled from intergroup, representatives of their, their meetings did some media around it. And about three months before I quit drinking, they did a, a piece on CBC Radio where they talked about what had happened. So I actually knew that they existed. And I also knew that they'd created and started to expand this website called AA Agnostica, which has become a real clearinghouse for uh, uh, non-believers who, some of whom are getting sober in AA and a bunch of people who are not getting sober in AA. It's, it's become a gathering place for people who are getting sober or want to get sober but don't believe in God. Right? Um, and some nice God-believing supporters. Um, and... and this was really useful to me because at that point I was getting really tired of regular AA meetings. Uh, um, the number I lost count of the number of times that people told me things along the lines of, you know, if you don't believe in God, you're going to drink. Um, uh, I had read the big book and knew uh, quite quickly that it was not going to be helpful to me. Um, um, it's helpful to a lot of people, but uh, the conceit is that it sort of describes alcoholics broadly. It doesn't. It describes alcoholics like Bill Wilson, right? uh, who was a middle-class white dude in the 1930s, straight. Right? It doesn't conceive of oppression. It doesn't conceive of influences of power and privileges. It doesn't privilege. It doesn't conceive of trauma. It doesn't conceive of any of those things. Right? Um, so it's not particularly useful to an awful lot of people. Uh, it's unsurprising that the people who first rewrote the steps and organized outside of AA weren't women. And I mean, it, when I, I was actually super polite and non-confrontational with people in meetings because people need to believe what they believe to be well, right? It's really important to them. And so, you know, I have to say, no, I'm not doing that right now, thanks, I'm just here for the... And I, I mean, I actually had people, one person yell at me, like, well, then why are you even here? Like because the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking, right? You know you're in trouble when you don't believe any of their theology and you actually have to quote it back to them to justify your presence in their space. Right? Um, so I ended up, um, and, and 
One of the reasons that, that this is such a problem for non-believers is that in AA, if something doesn't work, it's always your fault. <laughs> right? So if you don't follow the steps, if you decide that you're not going to do that work, the assumption in AA is that it is impossible for you to be coming to that position from a reasonably considered and authentic and sustaining set of beliefs, right? Um, what ends up happening is that you're usually branded as not willing. You fall into what I like to call the willingness trap. There's language in the big book that exhorts people to go to any lengths for sobriety. And if you are not willing to go to any lengths, and by any lengths they mean the lengths that your sponsor or some other AA guru tells you to go to, then you're considered to be insufficiently willing and in denial and insufficiently committed to sobriety. This is nonsense. Uh, uh, I, I believe a number of things that have managed to keep me alive and relatively happy through a lot of really difficult things in my life and for me to abandon those things because I walked into a room full of people after I quit drinking would frankly be absurd. But you know, there, but there's no no respect for that at all, or by and large, no respect. There are individuals who are really cool, but the overwhelming vibe is, is oh yeah, you know, you'll figure it out eventually. Come up with your placeholder God. You have to believe in a higher power, and eventually, you'll come to believe. Um, so, having had enough of this, I ended up contacting the folks at AA Agnostica. And they put me in touch with a man uh, who I can name here, the excellent Dennis Kilborn. Dennis died on April 1st of this year, and I love Dennis. Um, Dennis, uh, and Dennis was out publicly after his death with his first and last name. And, um, I won't out people uh, even after they're dead, and I won't out them when they're alive if I don't like them. Um, <laughs> as much as I would like to sometimes. Dennis was something like 40 years sober at the time that he died, and he had he had never believed in God. And at something like 25 years into his sobriety, trying to pretend to believe in God until all of this became clear, which is what they tell people to do, finally cracked him. And he actually ended up going into retreat for months and clarifying his atheism and coming back out and being out as an atheist in AA. Uh, and I actually encountered a lot of people in AA who spent a lot of time suffering completely unnecessarily because the God thing never actually worked for them, but AA was telling them that it was their fault, and it was because they weren't working hard enough and because they weren't willing enough, right? So Dennis got past that. And, and Dennis had started a men's group on the North Shore in North Vancouver that had morphed into an agnostic group. And I met with Dennis for coffee and decided to start the first agnostic group in Vancouver. Um, and Dennis cautioned me. At that point, it was like three months sober. And, and Dennis cautioned me that I needed to be prepared for what was going to come because uh, the AA was going to come after me. And I, I am an activist, and I could not care much less about uh, AA bigwigs coming after me, so I was good to go. So, you know, we, we met, we came up with a name, we got a meeting date, and, and the next step, of course, was to go and register with the local intergroup office, which is what caused all of this hell in Toronto. So a couple of people went off, registered at the intergroup office, and it actually went fine. The guy at the intergroup office said, this is great. We really need some meetings like this in Vancouver. It's about time. 
and everything. But we knew that this it was not going to last. And sure enough, within a few months, they canned the guy at the intergroup office who who listed our groups, delisted the groups really quickly uh, because there was a printing of the meeting directory that was coming up, and they didn't want us to end up in the printed meeting directory wiped the groups from online and sent us an email. And I'm going to read this email to you. Uh, from, he was, so this guy became the new chair of the operating committee. His name is Jim Jay. Jim wrote, uh, to whom it may concern, uh, in response to your inquiry regarding the listing of the Sober Agnostics meeting held in Vancouver, along with the We Agnostics meeting in West Vancouver in the local AA directory, I have investigated the matter and found that the previous manager made a unilateral decision regarding these listings contrary to policy. I apologize for his zeal, <laughs> but in matters such as this, they must go through the operating committee for approval. Since this has not happened, the meetings have to be delisted until they can be brought before the operating committee in August. I apologize for this misunderstanding and assure you that it will be looked into. In order to get a factual understanding of your meeting, could you supply us with the following information? <laughs> Sorry, with the, with the exact literature used in your meetings. It is my understanding that the little book is used as well as living sober. Also, could you inform me if you are using the 12 steps, how it works, the 12 promises, and the 12 traditions as approved by GSO in your meetings? With this information at hand, I can better inform the other members of the operating committee. Thank you in advance for your assistance, patience, and understanding. I remain respectfully, yada, yada. Okay. So, a couple of things. The policy that he was referring to doesn't exist. I, I, what I went is, I, I went and read. There was a policy for the operating committee. It's posted on the Vancouver Intergroup website. There was nothing in there that addressed any of this. There's never been a policy about any of this. The policy has always been, or the practice has always been, that when a group approaches Intergroup with a new meeting, they get listed. So this, this, this never happened. Um, the other thing that he's referring to, the, the little book. The little book is one of those collections of rewritten 12 steps. This is, I, I don't have a copy of it because I'm done with the 12 steps, but I also brought with me, this is also one of the forbidden books. This is called Beyond Belief, Agnostic Musings for 12 Step, Step Life, written by the excellent Joe C. out of Toronto. Um, uh, it is, I hate daily affirmations books. Uh, sorry, apologies to people who like them. I really dislike the self-help industry. I really dislike that stuff. This is actually an awesome book, but to a bunch of people in AA, this is a banned book. Um, <laughs> Yeah, a band book. Um, are we, how it works is that part of the, the, the big book that people read at the beginning of meetings, right? There's no requirement that AA meetings follow any format. There's no requirement that anyone read how it works. There's no requirement that anyone read the 12 steps. There's no requirement for AA meeting formats at all. And there's also, I mean, the, the GSO, the General Service Office, does approve literature, there's something called conference approved literature, but the GSO is also explicit that approving literature does not imply disapproval of other literature. There is no requirement that AA meetings only use conference approved literature. This is completely made up, like completely made up. So, and of course we all knew that this was completely made up. The next thing that happened was that Jim showed up at our meeting Right, sat there, uh, right, to observe all of us to see whether or not we were doing anything that was uh, heretical, uh, and then lectured everybody about the position of the office. And I had words with them afterwards. And then, and then, what ended up happening was, intergroup 
had meetings. And one of the, the, the it was really bizarre how uh, intergroup conducted things. We sent a group rep to the Vancouver intergroup meeting. She was then shut down. She was told that because we were delisted, we had no right to representation at intergroup and she was not permitted to speak. Right? And then finally, a few months later, there was, a, there was a meeting where things weren't resolved and then they had another meeting. And it is supposed to run on through operational principles of substantial unanimity, uh, what's called an informed group conscience, sober contemplation. And there's great value in A's principles uh, placed on the minority opinion. It doesn't run on a pure consensus model, but it's supposed to run you know, on, a, on a really strong, collaborative, respectful model. So these, what these great guardians of the sanctity of AA actually did was set up a meeting that had a secret ballot motion, not about whether or not to list the groups, because they didn't want to be seen to be making it a difficult decision. Right? They didn't want to end up in the media as, you know, Vancouver intergroup refuses to list agnostic groups. So instead, the motion was about was whether or not to, quote, continue to discuss the listing of agnostic groups. Okay? Um, that was the motion on the floor, whether or not to continue the listing, to continue to discuss the listing of agnostic groups. Um, they held it at that, that vote at the end of the meeting with no discussion. Um, the ballots, secret ballots also, it's not how they do it. Um, they, they, they handed out the ballots, they made everybody vote, they whisked the ballots away. A group of five or so people counted them in the back room. They came back out, they announced the result. That was it, it was done. And then the chair graciously asked whether or not the minority opinion needed to be heard. Right? So that was actually where, it, that, that was actually how it went down. Um, so, I mean, the outcome of this, has likely not been what the fundamentalists expected, though. Um, I, I mean, I doubt that they much care, but it hasn't been. So AA membership in North America is stagnant or declining. Uh, the, but the number of secular meetings is actually exploding. Uh, from these two meetings, uh, one in Vancouver and one in North or West Vancouver, there are now four. Uh, and there's also one in Nanaimo. The last time I checked, from those two meetings in the GTA, there are now 13 agnostic, atheist, and freethinker meetings in the GTA. Uh, AA Agnostica now has a sister website com called Beyond Belief. Um, so, you know, there, and there are all of these people who are like my sisters and brothers and struggle in AA, because they want to stay there, right? They, they argue that AA's traditions permit it. Um, and, and they, I mean, it's funny, I'm running low on time, so I won't go into sort of what their arguments are, right? But, but, but they believe that they have a right to be there. And, and so when people start asking the question about whether or not AA is religious, there are different groups of non-religious or irreligious people um, who will have a different opinion about how that question should be answered, right? Um, because for the folks who are struggling in AA, they believe that although AA is infused with religiosity, it has principles that should be interpreted to allow broad participation and people organizing in AA as secularists and providing you know, support for other people who don't believe in God. And they believe that ultimately that's how AA should evolve. So to them, answering the question, is AA religious in the affirmative means that they no longer have ground to struggle within AA. Um, of course, if, if you 
answer the question no, A is not religious, you end up with problems like yours where people end up being forced to go to AA as treatment and exposed to all of this religiosity and told that they're not sufficiently committed to treatment if they don't believe in their placeholder God, but you see where this is going, right? Um, so, I mean, the other thing is, is AA represents itself in the community as an organization that is available to everyone. And it does so in as many places as possible, right? To counseling, social work, and medical students, and professional associations, in jails and hospitals, right? So this is a matter of immense concern, because what AA says it is and what it actually is are not necessarily the same thing. And it continues to be mythologized. People attend expecting something different than what they get, and there's no small number of people who have suffered considerably as they're browbeat into working a program that does not work for them. Right? And I mean, that even leaves out just the question of efficacy, which is not great. Let's just stick with the, the, the God question. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I would love to see A become what it says it is, because it's free and it's organized at the group level, and it's a mutual aid model, right? And, and like I think that all of those things are awesome things. I also believe, however, that it's likely that AA is, is um, so intrinsically hostile to secularism and secular values that that's not going to happen. And the thing that finally fixed my opinion about that was AA's response, I think in 2014, to 40 years of lobbying for a pamphlet for atheists and agnostics in AA. AA has a lot of publications for specific groups. There's, you know, for women, for indigenous people, right? for gay and lesbian people, I think. There, you know, and there are special purpose meetings, they're called, right? So there are, um, uh, there are GLBT meetings, right? Um, and folks have been trying to get, AA has been saying for a really long time that you, you don't have to believe anything to go to AA. So atheists and agnostics said we need a pamphlet that includes information, stories from people who don't believe in God who have come through AA. And what ended up happening was that this publication, after 40 years of lobbying and writing, finally got close to publication, so the fundamentalists organized and took over the publications committee. <laughs> and instead of Many Paths to Sobriety, what AA published was something called Many Paths to Spirituality. And Yes, and I mean, and it contains an opening quote from Bill Wilson, you know, that has, says a lot of really nice things about how AA should be available to anybody regardless of, where is this, um, yeah, consequently the full individual liberty to practice any creed or principle or therapy, whatever, should be a first consideration to us all. Let us not, therefore, pressure anyone with our individual or even our collective views. Bill Wilson wrote that in, like, 1948? This is great, right? Here's, here's what's in the pamphlet. I, I pulled a few of them, and I'm just going to read you one of them. Um, when I finally admitted I was an alcoholic and came into the program four years ago, uh, this is written by a secular Jew, um, I thought, oh, God, why me? We Jews were supposed to be immune to alcoholism, uh, or so my denial told me. Yet today I am doubly blessed. I am a grateful, recovering Jewish alcoholic. It took me a long time to separate Judaism from alcoholism, to accept that spirituality did not affect or change my religious beliefs, but enhanced them. That my higher power was not the same as yours. That praying and the posture I used to pray does not alter my Jewishness, but is necessary for my recovery. Today, I can even recite the Lord's Prayer without feeling guilty, 
since it was pointed out to me in how it works that I have to go to any length to get and stay sober. Right? And you know, there's also people talking about how they pray to their inner resource. There's the person who is ostensibly still an atheist who says, but I know that the days I prayed seemed to go better than the days I didn't, even when I thought I was praying to my bedspread. Okay, so this is what AA offered a couple of years ago as their, their gesture to non-believers in AA, right? And so, you know, while I have respect for the people I know who were struggling in AA to make it inclusive, at that point, my reaction was something that's not appropriate for a group of people, uh, right? I mean, because, like, AA has an institutional obligation to be inclusive of groups, right? If it means it has to accept and respect the practices of its members. If it wants to be relieved of that obligation, then it has to identify as religiously exclusive and conduct itself accordingly. It can't have it both ways. And the reason that none of this is getting resolved is because AA persists in trying to have it both ways. It needs to make up its mind. I don't think it's going to be resolved in a way that's inclusive, um, but what I need, to, what I would like to see is an end to the hypocrisy. And so that is my talk about my adventures in AA. Um, so my name is Byron Wood. Um, I'm going to talk about a complaint that I recently made to the uh, BC Human Rights Tribunal um, regarding my employer forcing me to um, attend AA um, and participate in other 12-step programs. Um, so I used to I used to work as a registered nurse case manager. Uh, I was working in, in mental health. Um, and uh, I ended up being fired by my employee because I refused to participate in AA and 12-step programs because I said that they were uh, religiously based and I'm an atheist and I didn't want to participate in them. Um, so what sort of the background to my story was in 2013, I was admitted to hospital um, with uh, severe withdrawal symptoms from substance use. And um, while I was in the hospital, I was diagnosed with a substance use disorder. And when, when a health professional, such as a doctor, finds out about a diagnosis, if you have uh, uh, problems with substances or you have a mental illness, they're obligated to, if you work in a safety-sensitive position, they're obligated to tell your employer. Um, so I was given the option of self-reporting to uh, the College of Nurses uh, which I decided to do. Um, so they have a couple of programs. Uh, one is called the LEAP program, um, and one is called the Early Intervention Program. And these are programs that uh, BC Nurses Union, the College of Nurses, and Coastal Health uh, work together to create these programs and try and provide the services that people need to uh, safely return to work. So, um, so yeah, so I was referred to these, these two programs, and in turn they referred me to a doctor who was to perform an addiction assessment on me. Um, this, he's called an addictions doctor, 
Um, and he's referred to by the courts and uh, I think the BC uh, Human Rights Tribunal um, as an expert in addiction medicine. But addiction medicine isn't, it's not even a specialty recognized by um, the College of, or not the College of Physicians, but the Royal, um, Royal College of Physicians in Canada. Uh, so these doctors get certified in, in the States um, by the American um, Society for Addiction Medicine, I believe it's called. And when you get into what these associations and even the American Medical Association, if you read closely, um, a lot of their uh, treatments that they, they recommend and, and the definitions they give to addiction is actually not based on uh, current literature. Um, they talk about addiction as a permanent progressive disease of the brain. And there's, there's really no research um, that, that proves that that's the case. So I saw this doctor, um, you know, he charges $2,750 for an assessment. Um, he does assessments for doctors, nurses, lawyers, uh, anybody in a safety sensitive position. And so I had no choice in what doctor I saw. He was committed to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I found that a lot of people who work in the treatment industry, that's the case, and they have troubles or are unwilling to look at other treatment types and support groups other than AA and the 12 steps. Um, so I felt that he was biased and unable to, to accept any other forms of treatment other than AA and 12 step, steps. And this particular doctor is actually also quoted in the Globe and Mail saying, uh, there's no evidence uh, proving that Vancouver Safe Injection Site has any benefits. And, I mean, every, every, single, every single study, international study that's been done on this has shown that all the benefits of insight. So these are the sort of doctors that are um, the go-to doctors for people um, who are referred by their employees and courts and different places like that to, to get mandated treatment. And his, his actual report that he wrote about me was, it was unbelievable. It was, uh, it was really unprofessional. Um, the factual information about what a substance use disorder is and what effective treatments are uh, was, was not accurate. Um, he, he used a lot of the language that's used in, in AA in the 12 steps and didn't use medical language. Um, and he, he basically attacked me as a person, you know, saying that I was undeserving of social assistance and, and different things like that. So um, I actually filed a complaint with the College of Physicians, and that's another complaint that, that I've got going on right now. So in, in the report that this doctor wrote, he recommended that uh, complete abstinence indefinitely. Um, he recommended that a 10 to 5 week program, treatment program in home called Homewood Health Center, which is in Guelph, Ontario. And this is a 12-step program. Uh, in Ontario, treatment programs are not regulated by the health authority. Um, from what I understand in BC, uh, the health authorities regulate the treatment centers, and that's not the case in Ontario. This is a private, for-profit um, uh, company that uh, charges $30,000 with what it costed me, for me to go there. Um, that was covered by um, taxpayers' dollars, um, so I didn't pay for it myself, but that's money that, you know, the government and, and the people here are paying to send people to a program that's based on religion. 
Um, so I was to, to attend that program, and then once I returned to Vancouver, I was uh, instructed I had to attend regular uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, Narcotics Anonymous meetings. Um, I was supposed to get a sponsor through the AA program and spend uh, at least an hour a week with them and have regular contact, phone contact with them. I had to complete a series of 12 steps. Um, I had to have regular drug testing, meet with various monitors, uh, attend a health professional recovery group. Um, I was also going to be restricted from handling narcotics and sedatives at work for a number of years. Um, and so Coastal Health, uh, my union and my college, all supported um, this report that, and the recommendations that this doctor made. And I had to sign a monitoring agreement um, that I agreed to follow these conditions if I wanted to get my nursing license back and return to work. Um, so when I met with this doctor, I, you know, I told him well, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. Can I attend a secular treatment program? Um, and there is, this is also another problem, there's, there's over 50 inpatient treatment centers in BC, and I've, I've called probably 30 of them, and I found three that are not based on AA in the 12 steps or require you to go to AA meetings while you're at the program. Um, so one of those is the Maple Ridge Treatment Center. I asked if I could go there. Um, I also asked, instead of attending AA as a support group, if I could attend another type of support group, and there are other ones uh, that claim to be secular, such as SMART, uh, SMART Recovery Meetings. There's uh, the Vancouver Day Talks program. There's individual counseling. So I said I was willing to do all of these other things. Can I, can I do that instead of AA? I was told, no, I couldn't. Um, so I went to my union, my college, and my employer, and I asked the same question. They said, no, you have to follow the exact recommendations made by this doctor. And they said, you can get a second opinion, but it's going to cost you $2,750 of your own money, and you can only see one of three doctors which we recommend, and they all mandate the 12 steps and the AA treatment. So um, I didn't... I didn't want to do this, but at the time I thought um, I want to keep my job, I don't want to be fired, so I reluctantly went to this treatment program in Guelph. Um, it was quite, it was a terrible experience for me. Um, they, they use the disease model of addiction and they take it even further than a lot of people do. They say that addiction is a permanent progressive disease of the brain, which continues to get stronger even while you're abstinent, and it's actually at its strongest when you're not using substances. It, it makes no sense, it's not, it's not based on science, um, but this is what they teach you. Um, so, ended up uh, filing a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal. Um, my complaint was that the doctor and all these other parties involved, the union, the college, um, my employer, they all violated the code by requiring that I attend AA in the 12 steps, which I argue is religiously based, um, uh, with the threat of being fired, which ultimately happened when I said, no, I'm not going to do this. Um, so I'm also arguing that I could have and I should have been accommodated by being permitted to participate in other secular uh, treatment or support groups. Um, I'm also arguing that I was sub subjected to increased scrutiny, monitoring, and monitoring because of the nature of my disability. That's not so much relevant um, in terms of uh, 
of this talk, but that's, I'm also making that argument. Um, in Canada, there's, there's never been any ruling on the matter of whether AA and the 12 steps are religious. Um, in the United States, every, it's been ruled on a number of times. Every single time it's been ruled on, they've said it is, it's, it's based on religious principles and it's a violation of the establish, establishment uh, clause under the First Amendment for the government to mandate somebody to, to these programs. Um, so, so if my case proceeds, it, will, it could be the first ruling on this um, in Canada as well as there's the other case that Stephanie was talking about in Ontario that, that may rule on this. Um, and so Stephanie already talked about this, but in, in my eyes, AA and the 12 steps are clearly based on religious principles. Um, I'm represented by an advocate that I got at the Human Rights Clinic. And if my case proceeds to a hearing, I'm gonna be assigned a lawyer uh, through the same clinic. Um, so the main issues in the case, I guess, are is AA and the 12 steps, are they religious? Um, was I subjected to discrimination by being mandated to these programs? Uh, did the respondents have, um, did they have the obligation to accommodate me by, um, by offering other uh, secular types of treatments? And were these other secular treatment types available? And to all, to all those questions, I, I answer yes. Um, so the one issue that I'm facing right now is that when you file a complaint with the tribunal, it has to be filed within six months of the last discrimination that happened against you. And my complaint was right on the border, and there's different arguments you know, uh, about the interactions that I had with the various people of whether or not um, I did file that complaint in time. So um, we're arguing that it was filed in time. The respondents are saying it wasn't filed in time. If, if it's ruled that it, it's not filed in time, um, the tribunal will still hear a case if they deem that it's in the public interest uh, for your case to be heard. So if it raises unique, um, unique uh, questions or um, impacts other people in the community, other than yourself. So to do with public interest, um, we've made the argument that this, as I said, the religious nature of AA and 12 steps has never been ruled on in Canada. Um, and many people are, are being mandated by the courts, their employers, unions, human resources, to AA and the 12 steps. Um, AA's own surveys say that uh, between Canada and the United States, 165,000 people a year are mandated uh, by the courts into AAA and the 12 steps. Um, I'm also arguing that my case raises issues on behalf of a, of a vulnerable group, and we're saying that that's Vancouver Coastal Health employees who are uh, identified as having substance use um, disorders. Um, and so basically a ruling, we're saying also that a ruling in my case would allow these different organizations allowing courts and employers and unions to, to establish better policies and orders um, so that they're not discriminating against people when they're mandating these people uh, and supposedly helping them um, return to work. Uh, with, with my public interest submission, I've also included a paper by a guy named Jonathan Chapnick. 
and he's the head of the Hospital Employees Union. Um, and he presented this paper to the Human Rights Tribunal, or sorry, Human Rights Conference uh, in BC in 2014. And it's called Beyond the Label, Rethinking um, Workplace Substance Use Policies. Um, and basically he argues that uh, not only, not just AA in the 12 steps, but having somebody sign a, uh, a contract and mandating them to any sort of treatment program is actually discriminatory and, and unlawful. So we've, we've included that. We've also included 13 letters of support um, from various people and organizations. One was um, from the BC Humanists, uh, one was from the BC Civil Liberties, uh, one was from the BC Center for Addiction, um, other researchers, doctors, tre treatment providers um, all across Canada um, agreeing with my position and, and saying yes, this needs to be heard by, by the Human Rights Tribunal. Uh, so, so right now we're just we're wrapping up all the um, all the submissions on this timeliness timeliness issue that we're facing. Uh, so on June 24th, the last submission is due. Um, the respondents have argued that my complaint should not be heard because it was late being filed. They're saying there's no public interest in my in my case being heard. Um, yeah, they're, they're claiming that I never reported having religious objections to AA in the 12 steps, which is ridiculous. Every time I met with them, I told them about it. There's emails going back and forth between the doctor and the union, not directly saying that I said it was an atheist, but saying things like Byron, um, Byron seems to think that AA in the 12 steps are religious. It is not religious. And the, and the doctor goes on. Yeah, the doctor goes on to say, um, I've referred many, um, I've referred people of basically all religions, atheists, agnostics, to this program, and all of them did very well in this program. So, and then they also actually included, re most recently, Vancouver Coastal Health um, included with one of their submissions a letter similar to that pamphlet that, that you were talking about. And I, I just laughed when I read it because it starts off saying, you know, we're spiritual, we don't believe in God. But somewhere in there, it says something like, um, we are all children of an intelligent creator or something like that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you.